Good afternoon. I'm John Hart, the co-founder of C3 Solutions, the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, and I'm the editor of our news magazine, C3. Welcome to another edition of Right Voices, our video and podcast interview series, where we interview conservative leaders and highlight ideas in the climate debate. Today, we're honored to be joined by Representative uh, Marionette Miller-Meeks, who was serving in her first term as the representative of Iowa's 2nd Congressional District. Uh, Congresswoman Miller-Meeks worked for most of her life as a nurse and a doctor before entering politics. She now serves on the House Committees on Homeland Security, Veterans Affairs, and Education and Labor. Congresswoman, welcome. Thank you so much, John. How are you this afternoon? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks, thanks for joining us. So this is an interesting, you know, issue space for conservatives. Um, you know, I've I worked on the Hill for years. Uh, we've we've talked at various times, and you know, a lot of people in the conservative movement view the whole climate debate with skepticism, and I would say, rightfully so, and I would assume you'd agree with that. Um, but you've joined a conservative climate caucus. Tell us why you think why you decided to join that caucus, and why you think it's important for conservatives to offer ideas and solutions. And what's a very controversial and important area of area of uh, debate. Well, John, thank you so much for that. And, um, you know, I have children uh, and uh, I'm hoping to have grandchildren uh, soon. And I have also nieces and nephews. And for them, this topic is a very important topic. So as a scientist, as a physician, certainly was interested in climate uh, and conservation Um uh, we have land uh, that we're conserving uh, that, uh, you know, a lot of wildlife uh, habitat, habitat is on our, our particular property. Um, and my husband threw hiked the Appalachian Trail with our daughter in 2017, and then he threw hiked it again alone in 2019. So that opened up for us a whole new world of the outdoors. Uh, so then as I progressed and became a state senator in 2018, I had a lot of conversations and I just didn't feel that conservatives or Republicans talked about climate or energy in the right manner uh, in order to bring people towards us. First and foremost, we all want to leave a healthier, uh, cleaner planet for our children, our grandchildren. Let's start with that. We all want to leave a cleaner, healthier planet. The real question is, how can we do that in a way that doesn't disadvantage us economically in a global um, economic environment. So I think those things go hand in hand. Um, we know that the demand for energy is increasing over the next decade. We know that a variety of energy sources are going to be necessary uh, depending upon the different states. And so for me, I um, started uh, becoming interested in energy as a, as a state senator, given my, uh, my husband's and my daughter's excursions on the Appalachian Trail. I was answering these questions on a state level, talking with the Sierra Club, talking with the Citizens Climate Lobby. And so it was a very natural progression for me when I was sworn in to join the Conservative Climate Caucus. I think farmers, and I represent a lot of uh, rural and agricultural economies here in Iowa, farmers are the original conservationists. We have a lot to say about you know, protecting the land, making sure it conti can continue to be viable in the future and also protecting our waterways. Uh, I represent a lot of people who hunt and who fish and who create habitat. And so it was just very natural for me to want to join this group of people that's interested in having energy solutions and conservative energy solutions, but also protecting the environment. That's right. And how have your constituents responded to that? Do you do they do they bring this up in town hall meetings? Do they stop you or just ask you, you know, what are your ideas in this space? 
Yeah, it was interesting because uh, one of the largest subcommittee hearings when I was a state senator, it was not my subcommittee hearing. It was in natural resources and it was looking at uh, land conservation and how tax dollars and grant dollars are used. And it was, you know, everybody in all parts of the political spectrum were there. So hunters, people who fish, people who farm, and then people on the far left uh, also there who want to push more radical environmental policies. So it has been an interesting progression. I mean, Iowa has a great story to tell. So we're a state that without a mandate, without an admission requirement, you know, under the guidance of our terrific Governor Reynolds and, uh, and before her Governor Branstad, we're a state that has 50% of its energy from renewables. So that can be ethanol, biodiesel, uh, uh, biomass, uh, manure through digesters, uh, you know, cover crops. And then we have wind and solar. We had a nuclear power plant uh, until just a year and a half ago that helped supply electricity during the 2008 floods to the Cedar Rapids area. So we have this great story to tell. 50% of our electricity is from wind and we're a net exporter of energy. So when you look at one little state that's considered a flyover state and what it has been able to achieve without a mandate, uh, you know, without an emission requirement, but doing because we want to protect the environment, we want to make sure that we can meet the increasing energy demands with without sky high electricity prices. We have a great story to tell in Iowa. And that's something to me that can be modeled in every state in the union. Not a one size fits all, you know, centralized government philosophy of what we should do, which, by the way, this administration does not have an energy policy. It's one thing to say you want, you know, the numbers of electric vehicles to be on the road by such and such a time. But that is not an energy policy. That is not an overall strategy of how to get there and how to incrementally get there without having brownouts like they do in California or Europe and without having the sky high energy prices that we see right now that are just crippling our rural areas and crippling our economy and hurting American families. That's right. And, you know, it, it, it's always grating on me. I don't know if it is on you when you hear Democrats, particularly Chuck Schumer, talks about a whole whole of government response. And to me, that seems incredibly myopic because what we need and what I, I grew up in Kansas, so I'm very sensitive to the flyover country, you know, uh, attack, <laughs> so I understand that. I'm now in Maryland. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But uh, but this whole idea that we need a whole of government response misses the point that we need a whole of society. We need bottom up solutions, not top down mandates. And and, and I, I, I'd love to hear more about your land, because as I'm looking out my window, I'm looking at the at the Appalachian Trail. So I, I live in a valley oh. near the Potomac, near Harper's Ferry, and I've, I'm I'm on a farm, got 62 acres that I take care of. But I but t tell me more about your property and your land and how that's just your story of how that shaped your thinking and perspective uh, on this. Well, first and foremost, uh, the Harper's Ferry area. That area is just phenomenally beautiful. We spent a lot of time there because that was the midway point on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, so I love that area. It's just a great place to be. Uh, so we have uh, 50 acres. It's uh, right at the city county line. And, uh, you know, we have uh, it, there was farming here. We still have a neighbor who uh, does hay. So he uh, he'll cut and gather the hay and then he gives it away to a person who raises horses. So we uh, renew in that way. And then the rest of it is in forest. So we have we have deer, we have a wild turkey, we have fox. We've, I've had a bobcat on the property, a gray wow. wolf. Uh, we had two albino turkeys. Uh, so we feed the birds. Uh, we've got butterflies, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, we do have the pesky, pesky squirrels. 
uh, and raccoons who come up and try to get all the bird seeds. So, so that's a net negative when it comes to wildlife. Uh, but uh, we love being on acreage and it's where I center myself. It's where I get re-energized. Um, you know, it's where I come back from. And my parents, uh, also had property in Oklahoma and I purchased that property from my siblings. So I have 40 acres down in Oklahoma as well. They're not making more land. Um, and I, and as you said, all of us want to leave a cleaner, healthier planet for our children, our grandchildren. We want to enjoy it. Um, but you know, to say that there's not innovation, that we only need to have a whole of government response totally misses the boat. It misses the boat on innovation. It misses the boat on conservation. It was, you know, Congressman Blue, uh, uh, Bruce Westerman, who uh, did the Tree and Trees initiative. And there's no better source of capturing carbon than trees. Um, and the left totally neglects the wildfires, which are because of due, due to lack of uh, for proper forest management. And how much is released into the um, into the environment in the air when wildfires uh, ensue? So you know we have a great story to tell. I think innovation, allowing solutions within all fifty states, having the flexibility of states to determine what works best for for them, and also you know to have a government that will allow us to utilize our own natural resources in this country, of which we have an abundance. What you don't hear the left or this administration talk about or the uh, radical environmentalist is the fact that there is a, uh, a huge environmental cost to making solar panels in China. So they have bad environmental practices, bad mining practices, they have slave labor practices. And also no one talks about what's the net result when a solar panel loses its, uh, you know, uh, finishes its lifespan, loses its life or wind turbines or wind blades, those go into a landfill. So we're not even talking about the environmental impact of production, of uh, wind and solar or uh, disposal of them when they have finished their lifespan. And all of that comes into the environmental mix, uh, but you don't hear that touted. So I think what um, Republicans and what conservationists have uh, to bring to the table when it comes to climate and the environment and energy is extraordinarily important. Well, that's, that's a great pivot because I want to spend a couple minutes talking about Russia and Ukraine and the whole idea that we need to tackle this on, on a global level. And, and one of the ironies that I see in this debate is that the far left, they actually tend to be climate isolationists. They sell this idea that if America only would unilaterally embrace the Green New Deal, you know, the sea levels would, would recede, the temperatures would recede. And that's just not, that's not good science. That's actually anti-science because it's selling an idea that isn't true, where, where most of the emissions now are coming coming from China. And I was actually just in Warsaw, Poland and Tbilisi, Georgia. And I met with a lot of Ukrainian refugees and and, and talked to other thought leaders and, and folks in civil society out there. And there is a lot of anger and frustration at Western Europe for really, if we want to know what the Green New Deal leads to, it leads to what we saw in Europe, where Europe chose to depend on Russian gas because they wanted to appease their green uh, progressive base, particularly countries like Germany. And, and that was a disaster. It, it's, you know, only Putin's responsible for what he did. But of all the extra factors, one of the leading factors, I think, is was bad climate policy. And, and you know, as I talk to farmers where I live now, is they're very in touch with price food prices. And, and I yes. assume the same is true in Iowa. And I, I, it's important to dispel that myth that, that, you know, people in rural areas are not these you know, country bumpkins who weren't in touch with global affairs. So maybe you could give your perspective on how 
the, how Russia's invasion of Ukraine has changed uh, just the energy debate itself and, and how people are thinking about that in, in Iowa that you talk to or, you know, all the time. Well, I'll emphasize one of the points you made and about our farmers and our agricultural community. People in Iowa are extremely well-informed. So they're very aware that this, uh, you know, the Biden administration and my Democrat opponents attack on the oil and gas industry has led to sky high fertilizer prices uh, and also reduction in imports of fertilizer. So that's going to hurt our agricultural economy and it's going to hurt food prices come this summer. So food prices are already high. Uh, gasoline prices are already high, but food prices are going to go up, not only because Ukraine's not producing, but because we have a lot of concerns about what we're going to be able to produce this year. So you're correct. They're very aware of what's happening, and they're very aware of what's happening globally. And, you know, the an interesting dynamic we have pointed to for years, almost all of my adult life, we talked about as a nation becoming energy independent. Two years ago, we were energy independent. And in the short course of 18 months, the Biden administration has taken us from being energy independent to once again being energy dependent. We know that the demand for electricity and energy is only going to go up over the next decade. It is not going to decrease. And the Biden administration and my Democrat opponent, you know, they're doing the same thing that Europe has done. And they want it to export uh, the, you know, the things that are environmentally less friendly uh, and, um, and pretend that they're virtuous and that they're getting the bulk of their electricities from wind and solar. So Europe uh, reduced their oil and gas production. They didn't do fracking. Uh, they're sitting on billions of natural gas, billions of uh, BTUs of natural gas and of um, oil, uh, barrels of oil. Uh, but yet in order to push their uh, emission standards and their climate agenda, what they did was to um, adopt certain uh, regulations to favor certain uh, energy industries in uh, in Europe, but import um, oil and gas from Russia in order to make up for what they were lacking. Uh, we're trying to do, the, the Biden administration is doing the same thing here. What we need is an energy policy that is incremental, that has a glide path, that gets us to less carbon intensive sources, but utilizes liquid fuels, understands the benefit of liquid fuels, especially in rural areas, especially when you're traveling a long distance. I mean, I was at the um, on an uh, oil platform uh, out in the Gulf with uh, uh, Minority Whip Scalise. And when I was there um, and uh, the day before we'd had bad weather and rain, and I was thinking when I was in Texas and lived in Texas, and there were times that we'd be down at the coast and we would have to evacuate Padre Island in order to, mm -hmm. because of a hurricane and we'd have to go inland. Can you imagine being in an electric vehicle when you're having to evacuate the coast and you've got, you know, three hour drive in an electric vehicle, you would be stuck. You would not be able to evacuate. So, you know, this idea that a one size fits all government policy is what we need, I think is very myopic. And I'm an ophthalmologist, so I can say that with veracity, that it is a very myopic policy. Yeah, you're, you're, I'm you're give very you, incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you another example. And it's one of the things I've uh, shared with when I'm at college campuses. So if you think of right now, in 2020, there were 286 uh, million passenger vehicles on the road in the United States. So I'm, I'm going to extrapolate and say there's probably about 300 million on the road now. So that's passenger vehicles, motorcycles, and light trucks. In order to charge a vehicle to get 100 miles, it takes 30 kilowatt hours. So the math is not hard. 300 million by 30 kilowatt hours, you're talking 9 trillion kilowatt hours. You cannot produce 9 trillion kilowatt hours 
with wind and solar. Plus, we don't have the storage capacity. But think about that. That amount of kilowatt hours just for transportation, and that's just the passenger vehicles. It is not feasible. It cannot be done. And we need to acknowledge that and then move on to a strategy that is specific to states, that's flexible, that's incremental, that does not lead to harm us economically to compete on a global uh, economic environment and does not cause rolling blackouts. Because I don't think that people in Iowa are going to accept what people in California have done. Right. Or, or subsidizing other vehicles, by the way. That's another that's another problem. But but I, what I'm hearing you say is, is really an argument for energy diversification or an all of the above strategy where where I think what I think what the left does is they have an everything but everything but fossil fuels or everything but nuclear, whatever their base doesn't like is is their is their position. And, or and, everything but natural gas, which has no carbon emissions. Yeah. And just and a quick aside on that is is one of the points I made in Poland is that is that Putin Actually, Russia financed anti-fracking campaigns in Europe to increase dependency on his on his product. So, so it's it's a it's a you know totally irrational to not uh, make use of our own sources. And and energy independence and security really go hand in hand. And you made a really important point about about shifting from uh, purely renewables, and that raises all kinds of other problems because. Just as just as it's it's irrational to get totally away from natural or rather fossil fuels, natural gas, we can't go to fully renewable sources because China owns the supply chains for, for example, on solar, nine of the 10 companies uh, that make solar panels are in China. Our critical minerals are, are important. All of the things you just mentioned about electric vehicles, you also have the compounding problem that to make those batteries you need minerals that that our own government makes it hard to access. So, uh, it, it, I guess, w- what are your thoughts? You know, assuming that that Republicans take control of the House, um, is is our critical minerals one of the issues you want to tackle? And what are some of the other goals you have uh, looking forward to to the next uh, the next uh, Congress? Well, that's a great segue, and thank you. Yes, we want to attack critical minerals. So, whether they're, they're the rare earth elements, the copper. Uh, the cobalt, uh, you know, we have those minerals here within the United States. They've been trying to get the permitting process for the Duluth uh, mine in Minnesota, which has one of the largest copper reserves. Uh, and the, the Biden administration continues uh, to, um, to put the stomps on that. And, you know, I don't think people understand the amount of money it takes and the capital that you have to reserve year over year in order to try to mine uh, or to you know produce ethanol or biodiesel or oil and gas, it's tremendously capital intensive. And when you know an administration in the left sends a signal that they're not going to support those industries, that it really hurts us uh, on our, our energy independence and also our energy generation. So um, you know our own using our own natural resources tremendously important. Uh, allowing innovation to go forward to find what's going to be the source of energy. How do we have battery storage? No one's talking about um, hydrogen uh, and the, the benefits of hydrogen uh, and hydrogen fuel cells and how those can help reduce uh, carbon emissions. Nuclear, the fourth and fifth generation reactors that are smaller reactors that are safer and may also be able to be portable, which is going to be important for our military. So I think we've got a variety of things that we need to look at, we need to address legislatively. Um, I'm a co-sponsor on the Catch, uh, Emissions Act, which will boost uh, carbon capture tax credits. That's mm-hmm. going to be important both for industry, manufacturing, and for agriculture, also for our uh, power plants. 
We're looking at, uh, in Iowa, they're looking at uh, doing pipelines to capture the CO2 that comes from ethanol production that will actually make it carbon negative. Uh, and then uh, piping that into ge uh, geological formations where it's captured. It works. It's not pie in the sky. It's not research. It's actually working. Uh, we have biochar, which is um, concentrated carbon capture um, through pressurized uh, um, pyrolysis. Uh, and it also helps to, um, uh, to reinvigorate marginal soils. So, you know, there's a variety of things that we're doing in Iowa and around the nation that I think are extremely uh, productive and helpful and very innovative. So the Access uh, 45 uh, Q Act, which allows um, you know, construction to begin using the 45 Q tax credit. So um, I think that we can innovate, uh, we can develop new sources and the United States can absolutely lead on this. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that we found uh, when we went to uh, COP26 talking about nuclear, talking about innovations and talking about setting the standards for the world uh, that actually recognize uh, the, um, you know, what are the manufacturing uh, um, uh, processes that go into making solar panels. So taking into to the spectrum, the entire production cycle, uh, we know that here in the United States, our natural gas is 40% cleaner. Our steel is 45% cleaner than steel made anywhere around the world. So why wouldn't we want to utilize those products that are cleaner and safer and healthier for our planet? At the same time, it helps our own economy. That's right. I think what you're articulating too is, is the message we took to COP26, which is that free economies are clean economies. And, and I know we shared with you a report that, that Nick Loris wrote that showed that there's a correlation between economic freedom and environmental performance that free economies are twice as clean. And, and at the end of the Cold War, you know, the example I often give is when the Berlin Wall came down, it wasn't just a physical wall. There was literally a line of soot between East and West. And we see this pattern repeated over and over again. And, and, and the authoritarian totalitarian regimes right now, Russia and China, they're not interested in, in people's health and well-being. <laughs> you know, a, 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 a person that uses, you know, cluster munitions does not care about carbon emissions. So I think we need to have our eyes wide open and, and be fearless about supporting economic freedom. And I'm, and I'm encouraged by, by the work you're doing and, and, and grateful uh, for your leadership in this space. Well, we're, we're grateful to have you there amplifying our voices and helping to get this message out that, that we as conservatives, that we as Republicans know that the market works. Uh, we know that econ economic freedom and innovation uh, go hand in hand. Uh, and that uh, when we're talking about uh, you know, emissions and we're talking about a cleaner, healthier planet, that it is global and reducing emissions alone, which we know the United States has reduced emissions uh, greater than any other country. And Part of that is what we've done on our, in our own energy revolution that, uh, you know, that has to be matched by other countries that also have advanced economies. And uh, China and Russia and India certainly have advanced economies uh, well enough that they can have to undergo emission standards uh, as well as other countries. That's right. Well, Congresswoman, thank you so much for your time. And again, this has been John Hart with uh, C3 Solutions Right Voices interview series. You can follow us at C3 Newsmag. Dot com and look forward to joining you again next time. Thank you so much.